Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 251, Is the Trinity Biblical? Schumacher versus Griffin. Before we get started, speaking of debates, over at the Restitutio podcast at restitutio.org, my friends Sean Finnegan and Jerry Weirwill have been going step-by-step through Dr. Michael Brown's opening statement in my recent debate with him and really just dismantling his case based on a careful contextual reading of the passages in question. I've heard parts one through three. I think part three is particularly strong, and I believe there's going to be a fourth part soon, so be sure to check that out. For the most part, what they're saying is about what I would have said if I had had time to respond to all of the many passages that Dr. Brown threw out there. And in many cases, they give a better and more complete answer than I would have given. So be sure to check that out at restitutio.org. In this episode, I'm going to present a heavily edited version of a debate that took place on July 2nd, 2018. It's a debate between Andrew Schumacher, who I take it grew up in some sort of Unitarian Christian group and has since switched to becoming a Trinitarian, and his opponent, Andrew Griffin, who was raised in Oneness Pentecostalism and who has changed his view to Biblical Unitarian. I found out about this debate before it happened, and I did have a chance to listen through the whole thing shortly after it happened. I wasn't entirely happy with the result. The moderator was a guy who goes on the internet by the pseudonym Rivers of Eden. I take it that he's basically a closeted biblical Unitarian who's a part of a mainstream evangelical Trinitarian church. It wasn't an ordinary case of moderation, They built into the format the moderator going through long interrogations with each of the debaters. And I thought it really kind of spoiled the debate and prevented the debaters from interacting and made the whole thing super long. He sort of made himself a third debater. Anyway, I think the debate is maybe more useful to listen to without those long contributions. So Andrew Schumacher, the Trinitarian guy, he posted the recording of this on his YouTube channel called The Beginning of Wisdom, and that's associated with his blog, beginningwisdom.org. He posted the whole debate with the long moderator intrusions, and then later he posted an edit that he had made where it was pretty much debaters only. So I've taken that edit by Mr. Schumacher, and I've done what I've always do to the audio on this podcast. I try to get rid of most of the ums, the repetitions, the false starts, and I've tried to slightly improve the audio in a couple of ways. So here's my version of the July 2018 debate, Is the Trinity Biblical? It's the Battle of the Andrews, Schumacher versus Griffin. I grew up, as he said, as a biblical Unitarian and grew into a very passionate scripture-quoting, debate-seeking defender of Unitarianism. I just knew that the Trinity was false and unbiblical, and if you tried to quote creeds at me to convince me of the Trinity, I would have called you out for believing the words of men and not going to the text of scripture. In this, I have not changed. I was not convinced of the Trinity by clever arguments and sophisticated philosophy. I came to believe in the Trinity because it is found clearly in the text of scripture. I found that when I sought to be the best Unitarian I could, I was the one who was making the philosophical leaps in order to avoid the blows scripture inflicted on my worldview. I come to this debate seeking to help Unitarians to understand the scriptures, nothing more. 
The Trinity itself is not a single doctrine. It is a collection of several biblical doctrines that, if one believes all of them, one is a Trinitarian. Differences may exist among Trinitarians about how they explain the relationships of these doctrines, but those differences in explanation, if they do not deny any of these statements, do not amount to a denial of the Trinity. They do not amount to a different Trinity doctrine. If the essentials are there, the Trinity is there. And those essential pillars are, one, Scripture teaches that Yahweh is unique, which means there is no other God like Yahweh, in that only Yahweh is creator, and only Yahweh is the Savior of his people. Two, Scripture identifies the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as distinct persons from one another, not just different names for the same person. Three, Scripture identifies the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as Yahweh God in various ways. Four, Jesus Christ is identified as a human being with all the attributes of humanity. And five, Jesus Christ is identified as God, having all the attributes of deity. All of these statements are attested to in Scripture. I can point to passages that say all of them rather clearly. Now, I won't be spending a great deal of time on any of these items that Trinitarians and Unitarians agree on. That there is one God only, that Jesus is human, and that Jesus and the Father are distinct persons. I just pause here to point them out as falling within the essential pillars of the Trinity. As such, if my opponent seeks to argue against the Trinity by appealing to scriptures that support these aspects of the Trinity that we have in common, he's not really using his time wisely. He is only proving what we both believe, and I am happy that he's willing to use some of his time to provide scriptural support for those Trinitarian pillars we agree about. I, on the other hand, will focus on those areas about which we differ. Scripture also affirms that Jesus is God in many ways, that the Holy Spirit is both God and a distinct person from the Father and Son. Due to time restraints, I will be focusing in on the deity of Christ, primarily because what motivates the rejection of the Spirit as a person is a rejection that God can be triune in the first place. If I can successfully argue for the deity of Christ in the Trinitarian sense, then there is no motivation left to deny all the clear passages that do apply personhood to the Spirit. So how does Scripture teach that Jesus is God? It started with the Hebrew Scriptures. In Genesis 18 and 19, you have an appearance of Yahweh being described as an appearance of three men. This, alongside many other numerical ambiguities in the passage, culminates in the statement in Genesis 19.24 that Yahweh rained down fire and brimstone from Yahweh out of heaven, which in turn gets mentioned in later prophets with the same ambiguity as in Amos 4.11, where God says, I will overthrow you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. This plurality is given names in figures like the word of Yahweh, the name of Yahweh, and the angel of Yahweh. This figure speaks at times both as God and about God. One notable example being when he says to Abraham in Genesis 22, I know you fear God, speaking of God as someone else, but going on to say, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me, identifying himself as the one who gave the command to Abraham. But verse 1 is clear that God gave that command. So the angel seems from the text to be God and yet distinct from another who is also God. Is it just Trinitarian speculation that leads to seeing the angel this way? No, Jews before and during the time of Jesus wrote down their own thoughts about who this second Yahweh figure, this angel of Yahweh was. Some suggested deified human beings like Adam, Enoch, or Jacob, while others suggested spiritual beings like Michael or an angel not mentioned in scripture named Yahoel. The very existence of texts like these shows that it was already a Jewish question who the second Yahweh figure was, not a later Trinitarian novelty. 
Add to this the scene in Daniel 7 where the Son of Man is referred to as riding on the clouds. This language occurs five times in the Old Testament prior to this and is only about Yahweh. In neighboring Canaanite religion, it is a title for Baal. This is not a title of a representative. The Hebrew for God is used of many things that are not God, such as angels, demons, and the spirits of deceased human beings. The language of writing on the clouds or heavens is not so ambiguous. It is about Yahweh only. To have the Son of Man so described was to affirm his deity as strongly as possible and to show two figures in the same scene who are both God. In the New Testament, the major question on everyone's mind was not what the Messiah would be like, but rather if this particular man, Jesus, was that Messiah. This is why there is so much emphasis on Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God. The question of whether the Messiah, whomever that would be, was also God wasn't in the forefront of debate then like it is now, since they were focused on whether the Messiah had come. Since it had to wait for that event, the identification of the Messiah was far more urgent to them, and this is reflected in the scriptures. To show that believers in Jesus affirmed his deity, I will point mainly to four areas as a focus. Jesus as creator, Jesus as Yahweh, the worship of Jesus, and Jesus' self-identification as the cloud rider. I will finish up with some comments about the inconsistency of the Unitarian position in terms of considering itself biblical even on its own terms. First, Jesus as creator. Isaiah 44, 24 states clearly that Yahweh created alone. This means that anyone who is the creator must be Yahweh. John 1, 3 says of the word that all things came into being through him and without him nothing has come into being that came into being. Leaving aside the debate about the personal pronouns related to the word, it is clear that literally all things were created by this word. As John switches metaphors from word to light, he makes sure we know he is still talking about the same person by repeating in verse 10, though the world came into being by him, it did not recognize him. This link establishes both that the light and the word are one and the same, and that the beginning spoken of in verse 1 is the very beginning, prior to the creation of the world, since the same world he made did not recognize him. The new creation is only a reference to believers in the two times Paul mentions it, so they could not be what verse 10 in John's gospel is about. Next, in Colossians 1.16, we have the assertion that all things were created by him, and it makes reference to things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, so nothing is excluded, then makes reference to spiritual powers in heaven that he created all of them as well. So everything up to the highest, most exalted beings you can imagine were created by Jesus. Finally, we come to Hebrews 1, a powerhouse of references to the deity of Christ in many ways. But here we focus on verse 10, in which God the Father says to Jesus, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Notice that God here affirms the work of Jesus in creating, once again, heaven and earth. And we have, again, a clear reference to Jesus as creator, and it is grammatically unsupported to suppose there is any other you in verse 10. Second, Jesus is Yahweh. In Romans 10.9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. These statements are then supported by reference to the Old Testament, and in verse 13, Paul tells us the reason confessing Jesus is Lord saves is that according to Joel 2.32, whoever calls upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. It is well known that the Greek kurios, Lord, is the word used in the Greek Old Testament for Yahweh. The fact that Paul specifically cites this verse shows that he believes the reason calling upon Jesus as Lord saves is that he is the one Joel is talking about that we can call upon to be saved, and Joel is talking about Yahweh. To make it even simpler, calling upon Jesus as Lord saves us simply because he is Yahweh. There isn't any other reason for Paul to quote this text. 
In John 5, we have a very rich chapter showing Jesus is above the Sabbath law and other things, but I will focus on Jesus as judge. In verse 22, Jesus says the Father judges no one, having given all judgment to the Son. 1 Samuel 2.10 says that Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. Jesus says the Father judges no one. According to Unitarians, if there's one difference, then you have two things, not one. So is the Father someone other than Yahweh? Of course not, but on Trinitarian theology, it's just fine for Yahweh to do something that the Father doesn't, since the Father is just one person of the Trinity. Yahweh will judge, because Jesus will judge, and Jesus is Yahweh. The logic is inescapable, but to make it even more clear, Jesus goes on in verse 23 to say that the reason the Father has given all judgment to Jesus is so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. This is the antithesis of Unitarian theology. No matter how exalted Unitarians say Jesus is, it is definitional to their theology that Jesus is not honored just as the Father is honored, since Jesus is not honored as God Almighty. This concept of honor leads us to the third item, the worship of Jesus. Repeatedly, Jesus is worshipped, not only in the Gospels, but in the book of Revelation as well. Unitarians argue that the Greek word proskuneo is just a word meaning to bow, and it doesn't necessarily refer to religious worship. But what they stop short of is developing an actual doctrine of worship that is self-consistent or consistent with Scripture. Some draw a distinction between religious worship and political worship, like bowing to kings. This is fine, but Scripture gives us examples of the latter, and context tells us that it's political. Scripture also doesn't ever distinguish worship of Jesus as non-religious or of a special sort different than the Father. It is Jesus himself speaking to the tempter who says, worship God and serve him only. That is proskuneo. If Jesus says that, where does he teach the distinction that allows him to be worshipped without being God? What blows these explanations completely apart is found in Revelation 5, where glory and honor and power are ascribed to the one on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus in heaven is offered all the exact same worship that is going to God the Father. Nowhere does this text make the fine distinctions Unitarians are fond of on this subject. Finally, Jesus' favorite title for himself is the Son of Man. This title is taken directly from Daniel 7, as we've discussed. In Matthew 26, Jesus responds to the question about his identity as Son of God. You have said it, and I tell you the truth. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and seated at the right hand of God. Remember, claiming to be a God what didn't necessarily amount to blasphemy if it wasn't Yahweh you were talking about. But claiming to be the cloud rider was a much more explicit, clear claim to be Yahweh than just about anything Jesus could say. And the Jews' response is no surprise. As I've already stated, the Unitarian who seeks to disprove part of the Trinity by pitting one pillar of the Trinity against another is in a losing battle. The fact is that the Trinity is a coherent collection of doctrines that are all derived from the text, and while they admit of unanswered questions, they do not admit of any contradiction. The biblical problem the Unitarian faces is that none of his uniquely Unitarian beliefs is actually positively stated in Scripture. They can only argue for one God or the humanity of Christ, which are Trinitarian beliefs too. When it comes to uniquely Unitarian beliefs, they are mainly just negations of other Trinitarian beliefs. Jesus is not God. God is not three in any sense. The Spirit is not a person. The Unitarian problem is that while many passages explicitly affirm uniquely Trinitarian beliefs, where are the passages that say these uniquely Unitarian things? They just aren't there. On top of this, the defenses Unitarians have to employ to try to handle the onslaught of Trinitarian texts are largely also not found in Scripture. 
Where does Scripture explicitly explain Jesus is God representationally? Where does Scripture explain how to worship Jesus in a different way than God? Where does Scripture teach about Jesus that any reference to him as creator is about a new creation? The connections Unitarians are trying to make are connections that are not actually in the text. For a view that styles itself biblical, there is a lot of unbiblical speculation going on, just to try not to affirm the Trinity. Is it any wonder the church as a whole didn't face a real challenge to the deity of Christ until the fourth century? I would ask that you listen closely to my opponent's presentation. You can tell the difference between a genuine argument and a prejudicial statement. If you hear him say things like, that doesn't make sense, or I just don't see how, or that just seems like two gods, or how can that be? Then what you are hearing are statements about his own understanding, not about the Trinity. As I've said, the Trinity does allow for unanswered questions. Those are not equivalent to actual arguments against it. If he thinks there's a contradiction, let him show it clearly, not just say some things about the Trinity, followed by his own judgment that it doesn't make sense to him. That is an opinion, not an argument. The scriptures do not have to fit into our predetermined categories. They are the standard, not us. The Trinity is just what you get when you allow every part of scripture to speak as the words of God. Don't pit one passage against another. Listen to them all. Thank you. Encyclopedia of Religion, volume 15, page 54. Theologians agree that the New Testament does not contain an explicit doctrine of Trinity. I want to read a quote from Creeds in the Making, expressing the relationship between religion and theology. Religious people often feel that theology leaves a cold, dead abstraction in the place of what was once a warm and living faith. They fear that rationalization will explain away and dismember. And indeed, a good theologian is not necessarily a man of religion. But on the other hand, religion without theology is like a body without skeleton. It lacks that which stiffens and steadies it. It becomes flabby and weak and sentimental. What we see with Trinitarianism is the promise of a sound theological body. But when we begin to inspect and dissect that body, a practice which has gotten many people killed, rest in peace, Michael Servetus, what we find is an unstable, unsound, and thus unbiblical doctrine. When I asked Schumacher if he could please provide a brief summary of his beliefs, he didn't do it. I believe this is because when Trinity is strictly defined, it's easy to pick apart once you understand the illogicality of Trinitarian argument. But what we most often see is what Leonard Payne points out in his book, Evolution of Trinitarianism. He says, one observes at once the vague, fluxive, uncertain, and restless character of present Trinitarian speculation. Ask men what Trinitarianism today is, and they cannot tell you, or if they do, they'll disagree at once. New creeds are being made, but there's no universal acceptance of them. The old bottles of traditional creeds and dogmas are still used, and the old labels are suffered to remain, while the new wine of new Trinitarianism, which is not the old at all, is poured into them. So in other words, there's no consensus on exactly what Trinity is. The same creeds and dogma are used, but the Trinity we see today is not even the Trinity of what it used to be. The first articulation of Trinitarian doctrine comes through the Nicene Creed. What the Nicene Creed says is we believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. They believe the Father was the one God and Almighty. Yahweh is the singular person of the Father. Yahweh is who Jesus called God. 
What Trinitarians claim as we scroll down the creed is the son is of the same essence or substance as Yahweh, also known by the term homoousius or same substance. Christopher Steed, author of Divine Substance, which is an in-depth look at the philosophical, historical, and theological concept of substance, says this, the word homoousius, usually translated consubstantial or coessential, appears to have been introduced by Gnostic Christians of the second century. It appears in the summaries and criticisms of Gnostic teachings by Irenaeus. It means roughly made of the same kind of stuff, page 190. In other words, the claim is that the being of Jesus was the same substance of Yahweh. So what the true Trinitarian argument is, is not that Jesus is Yahweh. It is that Jesus, as the alleged pre-existent being, was the same substance as Yahweh, begotten before all ages, the Nicene Creed reads. This belief, as I will show, stems from the misunderstanding in the belief that the word or logos mentioned in John 1, 1 through 5, is Jesus or was Jesus before allegedly being born a man. I'm going to show why this is incorrect and incoherent, not only with scripture, but thus reason and logic. So if Jesus is not a trinity, how do we make sense of the Father, the Word, the Spirit, and the Son? Only when we get past a superficial reading of the Bible and past creeds and dogma can we understand the true message of the Bible. In the beginning was the Logos, or the Word, John 1.1. Through God's Logos, all things were made, we read in John's prologue. If we don't understand the term Logos, we can't begin to understand what is being said in John's prologue and why he may have chosen that specific term. In the beginning was the Logos, God's reason and purpose. Encyclopedia Britannica defines the Logos as word, reason, or plan. In Greek philosophy and theology, the divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. Now, that does not mean that John was necessarily promoting Greek philosophy, but rather making use of the term already in play and displaying it through a Hebrew mindset more in line with the word of God we see in the Old Testament, which says nothing of the word of God being a separate person. It's God's word. Jesus was the ultimate revealer of God's plan. He spoke the word of God, John 12, 49. In other words, the word was not any substance of his being. The idea that the word converted or transformed into a human is fantastical, not coherent with the whole of scripture and not the intention of John 1.14. What John is saying is that what God had planned from the beginning, the Christ and the reconciliation to God, among other things, became substance and we beheld what God had foreknown and promised. Later mentions of things actually being made through Jesus, not the word, refer not to the creation of the universe, but to the new creation in the kingdom established through Christ. The Holy Spirit. If not a separate person, what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the means by which God's presence communes and empowers mankind. The Trinitarians have somewhat of an advantage when speaking about the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is automatically the substance or similar substance of God. It's his spirit. We see Jesus say in John 15, 26, the spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, will bear witness concerning me. The same root of the word we see for proceed here is the same word we see in Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word proceeding out of the mouth of God. So Jesus is not the word or the spirit. Jesus speaks 
the words of God, being anointed with the Spirit, both of which proceed from God. For who among men knows the things of the man except the Spirit of the man within him? So also, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.11 Our spirit is not a separate person, neither is God's spirit. His spirit is his spirit. Our spirit is our spirit. Jesus' spirit was Jesus' spirit. Psalm 139.7 displays this beautifully. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Here we have a clear portrait of the Hebraic mindset regarding the spirit of God. Numa is a neuter noun. So it's not a person within itself. The word for spirit in Hebrew, ruach, and the Greek pneuma both mean breath. Psalm 33.6, by the breath of his mouth, the heavens were made. This is the breath of one person's mouth, not a separate, individually willed person. So what often we see Trinitarians then say, well, the spirit is individually willed because 1 Corinthians 12.11, the spirit works all things, apportioning individually to each as he wills. But one, there's no reason why the word translated to he wills has to be translated as such. To further clarify what's going on, we'll read Hebrews 2.4, God bearing witness with both signs and wonders and various miracles and distributions of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So it's by God's will, not the Spirit's will. Again, the Trinitarians have somewhat of an advantage there because in a way it's personal, but it's not a separate individually willed person. What does it mean for Jesus to be called the Son of God or Son of the Most High? There's two ways we see Jesus as the son of God. One is on earth. We read in Luke 131 through 33, the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, speaking to Mary, behold, you will conceive in the womb and bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give him. So it's grammatically impossible that Jesus is the Lord God. It says the Lord God. God will give him, there's two persons there, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob to the ages, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Never do we read Jesus is the pre-existent son of God. What we read is that he will be called the son of the most high. Then in Romans 1, 4, we, we read, having been declared the son of God by resurrection from the dead. We also read in Hebrews 5, 5 and Acts 13, 33, the quoting of Psalm 2-7, which says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, literally given birth to you. Revelation 21-7, Yahweh is speaking and says, the one overcoming will inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. One role we see Jesus in is as prophet as the new Moses. Deuteronomy 18-17-19, speaking then, Yahweh said to me, Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command them. And I will hold accountable anyone who does not listen to my words that that prophet speaks in my name. Again, grammatically speaking, Jesus is disqualified there from being Yahweh. Acts 3.22 and Acts 7.37 confirm that prophet to be Jesus. Moses was the prophet through whom the law came. Jesus was the prophet through whom grace and truth came. He is the fulfillment of the law in that he expresses the true intention of the law. For instance, in regard to divorce, in Matthew 19, 8, Jesus says, it was because of your hardness of heart that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But it was not this way in the beginning. I'll read a quote from Todd Lindbergh from his book, Political Teachings of Jesus, regarding this. 
Jesus is appalled by the way mankind, supposedly in possession of the law, has used the technicality of the law's commands to subvert its spirit. He says his mission is to fulfill the law. He directs people to look within themselves to discover their true obligations, and he remonstrates against those who think they have complied with the law merely by following its letter. There's no reason why Jesus had to be God to express what he did. Another role we see Jesus is is as the messianic shepherd king from the house of David. Here we see Yahweh gathering the people and a shepherd from the house of David being placed over them. Thus says Yahweh Elohim, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations which they have gone, and I will gather them from around and bring them to their own land. Three verses later, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. This is almost 500 years after David. So this is referring to a member of the house of David, which is Jesus Christ. So Yahweh has gathered them together and someone from the house of David is being placed over them. We read in uh, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. My father has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Also in Micah 5, 4, this is a good verse in reference to the claim by Schumacher that no authority was given to Jesus. We'll, re- we'll clear this up. In the same passage that tells us the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, we read, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, his God. So here we read clearly that Yahweh is Jesus' God. God cannot have a God that's grammatically and theologically impossible according to the Bible. When Jesus is referred to as God, this does not denote substance, it denotes position. Romans 9.5, he is God over the patriarchs, not the God of the patriarchs. The fourth definition in Strong's Greek lexicon is theos, the counterpart of the Hebrew Elohim, which is God's representative. So in this sense, Jesus is God over the patriarchs. In this sense, he is the great God and Savior. The Davidic king is called Elohim in Psalm 45, 6. Uh, In the very next verse, we read, therefore, Elohim, Elohecha, which translates, therefore, God, thy God. So I want to close with this really quick. The Hebrew word nefesh. The Hebrew idea of soul was never to break down the human into individual parts and say part of a human could be God or pre-exist and part of the human not be. I'll read a quote from The Lord is My Shepherd, The Theology of a Caring God, page 108. This is in regard to Psalm 23 and 3, He Restores My Soul. The Hebrew word for soul, nefesh, was not to be understood in a Cartesian sense of body and soul. The Hebrew word does not recognize a distinction between the physical and spiritual. They are as one unit. So whenever we refer to Jesus, we're speaking of the whole of his being or his whole being. Uh, When we read it said in Hebrews 5, 7, during the days of Jesus's earthly life, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and was heard because of his reverence. Or when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's his soul crying. Flesh doesn't speak on its own. So again, if Jesus' soul was not God and his spirit was not God, there's nothing in his being that could be God. Therefore, Trinity is false. If Jesus is not the substance of Yahweh, then the conversation becomes purely a metaphysical one of how God exists and manifests himself through his word and Holy Spirit. When the Trinity's podcast returns, rebuttals.
just to uh, address a couple of things that uh, Ms. Griffin said there, you know, he mentioned when we were setting this up, he asked me for a summary of my beliefs and said I didn't give one. I actually did. I gave him exactly what I gave in my opening statement. Those five statements that the scripture teaches there's only one God, teaches the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons, and teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each identified as God in various ways, that Jesus is human, and that Jesus is God. All of those things are individually taught in scripture. As I said in my opening statement, the Trinity is not the summary. The Trinity is all of those doctrines that are taught in scripture. That is, is what I'm coming from. You know, I'm, I'm going to the scriptures and talking about what the scriptures say. Um, a lot of uh, Mr. Griffin's first half of his opening remarks had a lot to do with quoting different encyclopedias and different scholars and theologians on their definitions of terms. The fact is that the terms that are used, whether in creeds or by theologians and all those things, those are great, like I said in my opening statement, as to use as explanations of the doctrine of the Trinity, but the actual doctrine, biblically, is just those simple statements. And it doesn't have to be five. It can be, you can break them down different ways. But those basic truths are, are what's taught. You know, he mentioned a, a few things talking about when he did get into the, the Bible, the, the scriptural stuff. You know, he started with John 1 and, and the Logos. And once again, uh, we got the Encyclopedia Britannica definition of the term. Well, that isn't something that limits how John used the term. When he uses the term for word, which is what logos means, it, it means a, a bunch of things. It can be translated a lot of different ways. It just depends on the context. But if we don't assume philosophical stuff and we just look at what did the Old Testament talk about? In the Old Testament, there are lots of references in the Old Testament. There, there are several times when the word of the Lord is a person. In 1 Samuel 6, in Genesis 15, where the word of the Lord shows up, we see from the context of the passage that this is a person saying and doing things. And this person also saying that he is Yahweh. So that really does show us that the background, and is the word of the Lord used in different ways in the Old Testament? Of course. Sometimes it does refer to communication or things like that. But there's not a rule that says you have to follow a specific encyclopedia's definition in order to know what the, the word means. Uh, this is a classic fallacy of confusing meaning and referent. I can mean something by a term that doesn't necessarily dictate what I'm referring to. If John is using metaphorical language, he's, and he is, even if he is using that communication language, he says later the word became flesh, which Mr. Griffin said, I understand you saying in the Trinitarian sense, if we say the word, this word became flesh, that that's a fantastical thing. Well, that's what the scripture itself says. As you go through the prologue, there's no question that, that it's the same person being referred to by a number of means and, and that the word was God. I mean, it says it right there. And when we know the Old Testament background of that, we can see you know, how that's really um, playing out in what John's saying. I don't have to go to philosophical stuff. I can stay where I'm at in the text uh, with what John would have known. Uh, we get the same kind of thing with, with the spirit, that spirit means breath, therefore spirit's not a person. Well, yes, the word spirit means breath, but the spirit is often 
talked about as a person and not just in the you know the one thing that that Mr. Griffin said you know we have examples you know where it says the spirit of god made me this is in job 33:4 uh, the breath of shaddai gives life to me in 1st Samuel 10 we have the procession of prophets met him and the spirit of god rushed upon him and he prophesied and and in 2nd Samuel 23 it says the spirit of yahweh speaks through me i would ask what speaks? Does just a, a non-physical part of a person speak, or does a person speak? Again, I didn't really address the Spirit much in my opening statements, really, because I've never met someone, and I'm sure they exist, but I've never met someone who denies Jesus as God, denies the Trinity, and yet believes that the Holy Spirit is a person distinct from the Father, who is also God. That It just doesn't go together. If you reject the Trinity, you have to reject that the Spirit is a distinct person. So that's why I didn't really go there. If, you, if, if we talk about Jesus and we establish that and that we understand God can be triune, then all of the passages that do speak of the Spirit as a person don't really, we don't have to find ways around those anymore. So the last couple things, you know, he mentioned Jesus being a prophet like Moses, being a good shepherd, that Yahweh was his God. All of these things that talk about Jesus as a human being, as I said before, Trinitarians agree with all of that. You know, I don't have any problem saying that Jesus is the shepherd king, the son of David, you know, that Yahweh was Jesus's God. You know, it's not that you have this person who has to add God on, it's that God took on a human nature. It's not that part of Jesus is God and part isn't. It's that Jesus has all the attributes of deity and all the attributes of humanity because God is omnipotent and can do that. Is Yahweh Jesus God? Yes, because Jesus is human. Trinitarians don't deny that. So he didn't really offer anything that actually refutes any actual Trinitarian beliefs. Thank you. Uh, Schumacher says, well, we don't deny that Jesus is the Davidic shepherd. Well, because you can't deny that Jesus, it's it's a continuous theme, which gives us the better picture of what scripture says. So it can't be denied. Of course, they wouldn't deny that. So when I hear Schumacher criticize my use of dictionaries and encyclopedia references uh, in a brief 15 minute opening, what I hear is, you know, let's just forsake all reasoning and let's accept my uh superficial reading of various seemingly obscure verses that I pieced together and, and here's your here's your artwork. And so let's let's get into this. Okay. One of the most common tactics we see from Trinitarians is what's called syllogistic or deductive reasoning. And we saw this implemented in Rome for a reference to Roman 10. It says in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, then verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Jesus is Yahweh. Let's take a look at this. So syllogism says something like this. All mammals have four legs. All dogs are mammals. Therefore, all dogs have four legs. But we know that not every single dog has four legs. And we can prove this method can be erroneous from Scripture itself. For example, Daniel 2.37, we read Nebuchadnezzar is called king of kings by Daniel. In 1 Timothy 6.15, we read God is king of kings. Implementing a syllogism, we could say something like Nebuchadnezzar is called king of kings. God is called king of kings, therefore Nebuchadnezzar is God. But if we get into the text, and, and, and there was a claim of uh, Unitarians don't really get into the text and, you know, let us see what's really going on. Well, let's see what's going on, because wh what we have to do is we have to realize that there's a whole lot going on in between 
verse 9 and verse 13. There's a whole lot that happens before verse 9, and there's a whole lot that happens after verse 9, and there's a whole lot that goes on throughout the whole scripture to get context. We can't just take verse 9 and verse 10 is, uh, 13 and say, well, there it is. He's talking about, for I bear witness to them, they had the zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. But being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they established their own righteousness. He says, for the end of law is Christ. Now he's talking about the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he's representing Christ here as the whole of Christ's message. And, and again, he goes in there and he, he gives us the verses, who will ascend to the heaven? That is to bring Christ down. That's not bringing Christ down. If we pay attention but you should not say in your heart because what does it say? The word is near you. So the things that we are supposed to have been doing from the beginning, the true message of the law is what we're supposed to have in our heart. But Jesus came down and he's like, you have your possession of the law, but you're using the technicalities to subvert his spirit. And that's why I brought that up. What it is, is that faith and understanding that Jesus is the truth and that an understanding that he's Lord, according to the whole of scripture, gives glory to God. Now, let's, let's look at another instance of this in Philippians 2. We see um, Isaiah 45, 23, every knee shall bow before me. And then verse 10 of Philippians 2, every knee shall bow to Jesus. So Trinitarians deduce that every knee shall bow to Yahweh and every knee shall bow to Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is Yahweh. You see the syllogistic reasoning. Uh, one of the most important things Trinitarians leave out of this passage is that every knee shall bow and, and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's not saying that Jesus is Yahweh. Strong's New Testament entry 1391 says this regarding this verse. So as to honor God, to promote God's glory. Every knee is bowed so that promotes God's glory. It's not to say he is God. This is the same instant, uh, idea in 1 Corinthians 1031. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, to promote God's glory. So, so for us to confess that Jesus is Lord and bow our knee to him promotes God's glory. It doesn't say that Jesus is Yahweh. The same way what we eat or drink or do, that's, that's not saying that what we eat or drink or do is God. A lot of Trinitarians bring up the angel of Yahweh. We have no reference in the New Testament that Jesus is the angel of Yahweh. But I can present an excellent case to, where Jesus, to why Jesus is not the angel of Yahweh from Scripture. Genesis 16 and 11, we see the angel of the Lord. And he says, behold, you are to conceive and you will have a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. Luke 131, the angel of the Lord, identified as Gabriel, gives the same exact message. Behold, you are to conceive and you will have a son, you shall call his name Jesus. So we can see an angel is a, a speaking for God. What happens is uh, Exodus 3, 20 through 21, Yahweh tells the Israelites, behold, I'm going to send an angel before you, not a second member of a trinity, an angel before you. Be on your guard and obey his voice since my name is in him. We see in uh, Jude 1, 9, the archangel Michael makes the same exact statement to the same exact person we see in Zechariah 3, 2, when he says, Yahweh rebuke you. And so it's saying, Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebukes you. This is saying the angel with authority in the name of Yahweh says, Yahweh rebuke you. And this also explains how Yahweh had lunch with Abraham, somebody who had his name and his authority, not, not to say that makes sense out of it. So where there's absolutely no evidence that Jesus is the angel of Yahweh, Various speculations, he brings up about uh, various speculations people has. Well, people having speculation doesn't mean truth. What we have is something they didn't, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus Christ, and the revelation of the whole entire New Testament. So various sects of Jews saying certain things is not a sign that things were coming together. It's a sign of things were falling apart.
So because they had various ideas, Trinitarians like to jump on that and say, well, yeah, well, they believe a certain amount of people believe this. And my thing is, I would never lean on a, a people's understanding who constantly needed correction from the prophets. So it's not like they were always doing things right. They were constantly worshiping idols and, and having false teachings and constantly had to be corrected. So I wouldn't use them for my understanding of my doctrine. When the Trinity's podcast returns, cross-examinations. For the first question, you've said a few different things that Jesus has a God or, you know, Jesus is by God. That distinction shows that he isn't God. Is that right? That's correct. How many persons do Trinitarians say God is? It depends on who you talk to. Well, how many have I said? Three persons. There is three persons. Okay. So if one person sends another, is that incompatible with the Trinity? No. Okay. Um, you've also made reference to some of Jesus' human attributes to contrast with God's attributes to show that he's not God. Is that right as well? Like, for example, he has a God and the Father doesn't have a God. That's that correct. Right? Okay. So do Trinitarians believe Jesus is fully God and fully man? The way I put it is, you know, has all uh, divine do, attributes, all human attributes. Do we believe that, that he's human? Which one? Is he human or do they believe he's fully man? Fully God. The new Trinity that I that is going around today that's referred to as New Trinitarianism uses the terminology "fully God, fully man." I don't know if that's right. what you believe. Yes, I do. Um, I'm just okay. that's what I'm I'm trying to ascertain. Is you agree that Trinitarians think Jesus is, has those two natures: fully God, fully man? Correct. Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you appeal to attributes that fall outside of deity, that you appeal to human attributes. Does any of that contradict the Trinitarian belief that he's fully man? I don't understand. I'm sorry. I guess what, what I'm getting at is, does your, your arguments that about Jesus, for example, having a God, I would say yeah. that's because he's fully man. Is there any way that that conflicts with anything Trinitarians believe? Uh, Trinity confuses me. Uh, if you could be a little more technical cool. about what you're trying no, to no, say. That, that, actually, that answers my question. Thank you. Um, okay, so um, moving to John 1. You would say that uh, the Logos in John 1, 1 is God's plan or reason, correct? Yes. Okay. When verse 3 says, all things came into being by the word, him or it, however you want to put that, um, you would say that roughly means that God created using that plan or purpose, correct? Using it, yeah, it's broad. It's a broad term. Yeah, yeah. I'm Somewhere, not trying to be yeah. too specific. Okay, yeah. so um, later in, in John's gospel in verses 5 through 13 of that same prologue, it talks about the light, and the light is the one that also created. As I said, you know, he's in the world, the word was made by him. And all the other stuff in verses 5:13 are definitely about Jesus the person. Uh, I think you would agree with that. How would you understand, since it parallels verse 3 with creation and verse 10 with creation, that this is, you know, it appears to be the same person in the in the text? How do you reconcile that, that verse 3 isn't about Jesus? 
That's a great question. So when we look at John's prologue, you know we see verses 1 through 5. How I see it is that it's then broken down 6 through 13 and mm-hmm. then broken down from 14 to 18. How I see it is that John 1 through 5 speaks and then truly picks up at 14. And what we see 6 through 13 is sort of a riff where he goes mm-hmm. on and makes a philosophical uh, statement, a semi-personification painting a, a picture, but not meaning to be literal. Okay. So would you say the two different creation texts there, verse 3, verse 10, are about different creation events? No. Because verse 10 is ob- seems obviously to be about Jesus. The world came into being by him. So would you say, yeah. and then verse 3 is, seems from what I'm hearing you say, is about the initial creation. Would you say those are different yeah. creation events for John? No, it's just, it's the same. It's the same event. It's just it's just then referencing to Jesus from six to thirteen, not okay. referencing Jesus in one through five. Okay, but verse ten is that a reference to Jesus? No, it's it's a it's really a personification about the logos, but at the same time, it expresses Jesus and what Jesus had to say. What was from the beginning that spoke from the beginning that the that was God was speaking from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Jesus came in and people still didn't understand what he was saying. Okay, um, moving on to another one. As I talked about in my initial part, First uh, Samuel two ten says Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. Of the three that we discuss, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which one would you say is Yahweh? Uh, the Father. The Father. Okay. Yeah. John five twenty two says the Father judges no one. That would be a difference between Yahweh and the Father. Are Yahweh? And, do you still think Yahweh and the Father are the same person? Yeah. I, yeah. I know they are. Verse twenty three says that the reason the Father gave judgment to the Son is that so that all people would honor the Son just as they honor the Father, and he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Would you say as a Unitarian that you honor the Son just as you honor the Father? I honor them both, but the, the the difference in our understanding would be, do we honor him in the same exact manner? I think Jesus is worthy of worship, but I don't worship him as the God who spoke the world into existence. Okay. So it's okay for you that Yahweh judges everyone, but the Father judges no one? No, but if we, uh, no. Well, see, there's, uh, we're, we're not having context here. And what Jesus says is that the words that I leave you with you will judge you. On that day, the words he received are from his father. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I agree. The next verse, and this is how I'll finish up. Next verse. And I think that's the difference there. Okay. Um, so you honor the father as God? Absolutely. But you don't honor the son as God? I honor him in a sense of, a, of, of depending on how you define God. If we talk about the Lord God, no. As God, as the messianic king, like we see in Psalm 45, absolutely. Okay. And last question. We have this command that we're supposed to honor Father and Son the same. Do you see any clear command in Scripture, any explanation for how we're supposed to honor the Father and Son in different ways or at different levels? Well, like I said, we don't worship Jesus as the one who created the world. You know, we see over and over and again that Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. When we see worship, it is not in the same sense that we see. Uh, when we see worship in the Old Testament, we see people bow down, face down to the ground. See that same worship for Jesus. It's not in the same manner as worshiping him as God. So, I mean, it's a good question. Schumacher, you said you believe Jesus is fully God and fully man, correct? Dictionary defines fully as completely or entirely to the furthest extent. Wouldn't you agree that's a contradiction of language? No. So there's no No difference between God and man. 
I mean, we're saying that he's fully God. That means he's completely and in, in entirely. And he's also, to the furthest extent, a man. Do you don't think that's a contradiction of language? Not at all, because I don't define it according to that dictionary definition. I define it, as I said earlier, about having attributes. What makes someone have a certain nature is those attributes. So he has all the so divine attributes and all the human attributes. So you don't define words according to the dictionary. Is that what I just I, heard? I define them according to the Bible. That's the definitions I'm using okay. for this debate. All right. So you said that Trinity is a collection of doctrines. You didn't really specify which doctrines, which I think is is, is very vague. But so do you do disagree with the, the Nicene Creed, which says we believe in one God, the Father Almighty? Do you believe that the Father alone is Yahweh, is, is God Almighty, as the Nicene Creed says? Well, couple things. Um, I did give you those collection, the, those five statements a couple of times. As far as the Nicene Creed, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. The Nicene Creed doesn't use the word Yahweh. It doesn't use the word only the Father is the one God. It's okay, so God so you're saying Father. that, so, so, G, so it, the Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but Jesus is also the Father? No, Jesus is God. Jesus is a member of the but Trinity. The, but the, the terminology, it says specifically, we believe in one God, the Father mm -hmm. Almighty. Right. And one Lord Jesus, who is the mm -hmm. same essence. Jesus is Jesus, and God, and God the Father is God the Father. If, when we look at the Bible, we see that, that Yahweh is God the Father uh, of everything. Mm -hmm. Nicene Creed says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. So what you're saying is that Jesus is not excluded from that? No. Jesus He's, is the Father? Right. So one thing I didn't bring up, it, it, they're using the same language as, as in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. One God, the Father, one Lord Jesus Christ, which is a Christianizing expansion of the Shema. Our, the Lord our God is one Lord. So, yes, the term God okay, and all right. Lord both I, apply. I feel like, all right, all right, I, I appreciate it. So, uh, we'll go on so we can further this. So, uh, Jesus says in Revelation 3.12, To the one who is victorious, I will make him a t pillar in the temple of my God and he will never again leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem that comes down from out of heaven from my God and my new name. So, mm -hmm. Who is the God of Jesus Christ? The Father. So the Father is God. So God. Yeah. Okay, so there you go. So the, so the Father is the God of Jesus. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. Jesus is human. That's a Trinitarian belief. That the so Father is God, the so, but you're saying Jesus is God and God right. is God. Also, so God, you're saying God has a God. I'm saying that Jesus, because he is fully human, has a God. And but that Jesus is was not Jesus was not fully human when he was saying this. Yes, he was. He still been, is. He al he he'll was, always be fully human. Okay. All right. Let's do, let's do this. One last question. Uh, mm -hmm. Man consists of three elements to his being: his body, his material structure, his soul, and his spirit. Which one of these three elements in Jesus was, which was God? I don't know. So you don't have, but the, the first six councils of the Trinity are all based mm -hmm. off this very question. If, if no substance of Jesus is God, then, then he's not God. See, you can't give an explanation for what you're saying. You're saying that we should just believe something because you mm -hmm. say it's true, but you can't explain how that is. You're giving something that's extra biblical. Is the Trinity biblical? You just that, got your answer right there. Well, no, I, I want to answer that question. I'll, I'll take that as a question. 
the fact that uh, there are unanswered questions about the Trinity are ways of, you know, that, that there are certain parts of it that we don't oh, know. Okay, let me clarify. Je- Jesus is a man, and it says that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. If he was mm-hmm. God, why did he need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? He was fully God. Mm-hmm. Because w- you're starting from the human side. I'm starting from the God side. Mm-hmm. God took on a human nature. Oh. God emptied himself. Now, that doesn't mean he stopped being God, but it just meant True. that he lived as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit and oh. was exalted oh. to high status. So he lived as a man, then he wasn't God because he lived as a man. But you're saying he's both fully God and fully man. You got to admit that that's, that, that, is, that is a riddle. It is definitely something. I don't know how it works right. on the inside, it is but that doesn't make definitely it not. Okay. But, and it's not biblical because we know sure. that Jesus is a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. So you can't explain it. We, we're t- we know that men are men, and we know that God mm-hmm. is God. We know that men are empowered by the Holy Spirit. I can explain my beliefs according to Scripture. We say that Jesus was a man. They say he was found as a man. God would judge the world by a man. He says in the very last chapter of Revelation 22, I am the root and the offspring of David. I am a shoot and a descendant of David. And yet he's God. Do you have any verse in the Old Testament which says the Messiah will be Yahweh himself? Yes. Uh, Daniel 7, 13 or 14, whichever one said that he's the cloud rider. That's the one that says no, the Messiah no, is no, God. No, it doesn't say anything about the Messiah. He says it's the one like a son of man, the one like a human mm-hmm. being. That's yeah. your only messianic verse? Is that it? No, not at all. Uh, there's lots of them. Do you have any more? Yeah, can you say it? Can you just said, give me one more? One more from the Old Testament that says what exactly? That the Messiah will be Yahweh himself. Uh, sure. Uh, not uh, Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, his name will be called Mighty God. I mean, there's ways to explain around that if you want to do that, but I'm, it's in there. It's in the text if, if you want an example. When the Trendies podcast returns, closing statements. Is the Trinity biblical? That's quite a strange premise on which to have a debate. I think the better question to ask is not, is the Trinity biblical, but rather, is what I believe the Trinity to be biblical? Because as we pointed out earlier, there's no one consensus on exactly what Trinity is. The definition of Trinity varies based on which Trinitarian you're asking for a definition from. And we see disagreements on exactly what the Trinity is from very early on with the split in the so-called church based on how one is even to define Trinity. So is the Trinity biblical? Absolutely not. It's based off man's interpretation of what the Bible says, not what the Bible actually says. What Trinity has to admit is that with salvation at hand, God has inspired a labyrinth of riddles that one must figure out in order to obtain salvation. So that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's really speaking to another member of his own being, but doesn't actually have a God. He is fully God. That's confusion, but that's what the Trinity teaches. 
The reason I so strongly detest the doctrine of Trinity, or rather the idea that Jesus is actually God, is that because so many people in need of deliverance from the things that bind us, the last thing the people need is a doctrine of confusion not found in the Bible. It's not necessary. There's absolutely no reason Jesus had to be God to do anything he did. Jesus didn't teach Trinity. His disciples didn't teach Trinity. No writer of any book of the Bible wrote about a Trinity. What Trinity does is take a handful of seemingly obscure verses and exploits them to try to make a point. What the Bible teaches is that there's one God, the Father, and this unipersonal God, Yahweh, sent his beloved son in the same manner that he sent Jeremiah and he sent John the Baptist, anointed his son with the Holy Spirit, made him both Lord and Christ. This unipersonal God alone is the the self-existent one who was and is and is to come, who alone is immortal, who is the God of Jesus and whom Jesus called his God and Father. Jesus was prophesied to be fully human, was born fully human, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, first born from the dead among many brothers and sisters, and anything past that is unbiblical. If no substance of the being of Jesus can be identified as God, then the Trinity implodes. Many have speculated, none have come close to a coherent answer. Search the first six councils. What is biblical is that Jesus is fully human and powered with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give an example of Trinitarianism uh, from a website that I read. He says, one of the greatest mysteries of the faith is the incarnation. How Jesus could be both fully God and fully man at the same time is incomprehensible to us. Though we cannot fully explain it, we know that God knows what it means to be human because he took on our nature in Christ. Notice at first, the person writing the article says it's incomprehensible. But the very next sentence, he says, though we cannot fully explain it. The reality is, is they can't explain it at all because to be incomprehensible is not able to be understood. The Trinitarians present a mystery in order to obtain the power of that mystery because what is mysterious holds power. And this is the ploy of Trinitarian doctrine. In the beginning was the word. All things were made through the word. Everything from that point forward that was made through Jesus, uh, Colossians 1.15, it says that we're, we're taken from the dominion of darkness and that Jesus is the, the messianic king. If Jesus makes a, has a kingdom, it makes sense that Jesus had a, a court or thrones established through him. This is speaking of the new creation. Uh, Schumacher said that, um, that only God can judge. But we read in Acts 17.31, because he... God overlooked the ignorance at early times, commands that people repent, for he, the singular person, has set a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, not he was, having provided a guarantee to all by raising him from the dead. Uh, As far as worship, we see people all throughout the Old Testament. We read of Elisha who healed a boy, received worship from a lady who bowed down, face down to the ground, and he didn't refuse. That's a weak argument. Uh, Daniel 7, we read about one like a son of man who was presented before the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? That's Yahweh. That's a singular person, king, who seated on a throne. And the one like a son of man was given a kingdom. Again, you create all sorts of problems there when you talk about Yahweh was given a kingdom. He's Yahweh. He's almighty. If all three members of the Trinity are almighty, why do you need three of them? Because you would have to say that one person 
of the Trinity couldn't or did not do something that the other member of the Trinity did. It's nonsense. If you have three almighties, then you have three gods. No matter what Trinitarians claim on the outside, when we get in and dissect the Trinity, we see the reality that it's an illusion and a lie. I just want to finish up tonight's debate by thanking Rivers for setting it up, for Mr. Griffin for being agreeable to doing the debate and providing the platform for hosting it on his channel. I also want to thank my wife, Nikki, for her input, patience, and willingness to give up time with me and help with our kids so I could prepare for and engage in this debate. As I said in my opening statement, the Trinity is a collection of doctrines taught in the Bible. Some of those doctrines are also affirmed by Unitarians, Oneness folks, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Muslims. Some are not. My opponent and I agree that there is one God, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct, and that Jesus is human. What we disagree about is that Jesus is also God, that the Holy Spirit is both God and a person distinct from the Father. In the course of this debate, I laid out as much of a case as time would permit that Scripture sees Jesus as God from the fact that it speaks of him as Yahweh, as creator, as one worthy of worship, the worship of Yahweh, and as the cloud writer of the Hebrew Scriptures. These names and descriptions, among others, are absolutely unique to God in the Old Testament, and nothing in the New Testament changes that. God is the only one who is Yahweh, who created, who is worthy of worship, and who rides the clouds. In listening to my opponent's arguments, I hope you heard what I did, that he was not able to answer these scriptural facts about Jesus, but rather only made two kinds of arguments for his position. One, he appealed to scriptures we agree about, like when he argued that there's only one God or that Jesus is distinct from the Father or for Jesus' humanity. We agree on the scriptural data in these cases, but he goes on to the conclusion Jesus can't be God, even though none of the passages said this. It is my opponent who is appealing to philosophy and human reason to make his point, leaving the scriptures behind. He appealed to his own mental state and understanding as a premise to try to make his point, saying that's just not logical, that I forsake all reason. These statements are his conclusions, not evidence for his case. They're typically associated with finding logical contradictions, but he never actually cited any specific explicit logical contradiction that I either said or am committed to. So this type of argument fails to even be an argument. Mr. Griffin's lack of understanding or ability to make sense of the Trinity isn't something I'm obligated to refute. In his rebuttal to my argument that Jesus is Yahweh from Romans 10 and John 5, he jumped away from those texts and went to Philippians 2. He didn't address John 5.22 at all, that the Father judges no one, but Jesus is judge. He made claims that there are other things in Romans 10 that mitigate this equivalence between Jesus and Yahweh, but didn't actually give an example, but instead went to Philippians 2. He also said Nebuchadnezzar is called King of Kings, and we don't call him God, but I didn't appeal to Jesus being called King of Kings. I appealed to him being called Yahweh, and only God is Yahweh. In closing, I'll just say this. You don't have to grasp everything about God to be saved. You don't have to understand or even be able to explain all the intricacies of the Trinity to be a believer or recipient of eternal life. However, there are clear scriptures that indicate a belief that Jesus is Yahweh come in the flesh is required to be saved. When Paul says in Romans 10 that we must confess Jesus as Lord to be saved, but makes it clear that confession is a confession that he is Yahweh. When Jesus says that the reason the Father does not judge, but is given all judgment to the Son, is so that all will honor the Son, just as they honor the Father, and concludes that he who does not honor the Son in this way does not honor the Father. I didn't cover the I am statements, but 
if they mean what all those other things mean, that Jesus is Yahweh, then it matters greatly that Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. These are not small matters. I pray everyone who hears this debate will humbly go to the scriptures and submit to God. Don't put your ability to make everything fit into a nice, neat box onto a level above the scriptures. You may not think that you do that, but if you find, like I did when I was a Unitarian, that you must constantly look for ways around difficult passages, but your theology is a nice and neat, I ask what it is you have elevated. Today, my theology has many unanswered questions, but as we have seen tonight, I don't have to make sure the scriptures don't really mean that. I can affirm everything my opponent affirmed that he could get directly from scripture, but my opponent had to run and dodge to other parts of the Bible or to his own reason to get around the clear meaning of the passages I raised. Be in submission to the words of God. If you have elevated your own reason above submission to the scripture, repent and believe in Jesus truly for salvation. Fall on your knees and cry out as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. Thank you. Today's thinking music has been I Dunno, Grapes of Wrath Mix by Spinning Merkaba. As always, on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, you can find a link where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.